Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hi, I'm Caroline B. And you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So thank you, Caroline B., for introducing the Tennis Podcast, one of our Kickstarter backers at the start of the year. It's been a funny old year, hasn't it? And we have just had our worst predictions ever week. Split into two parts. Hope you enjoyed it. We hated it. But Catherine's back. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Still collecting my dignity from the floor. Yep. Okay. Stay down there because I think uh, there's, there'll be more of it to, to pick up later. Uh, Matt, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Someone on Reddit said that it should become a yearly thing, our worst oh. predictions. I'm not sure Imp- we're ready for that. Implying that there will be enough material annually to create a whole show. I mean, that was eight years worth in our defence. Yeah, but I mean, there was a lot left out, let's be <laughs> honest. And plus, um, that's a great way of teasing Reddit, Matt. Well done. Uh, we've got a Reddit page, everybody, which is our online community uh, for tennis podcast listeners. If you want to go out there and just make fun of us like that person clearly did. Thanks about My dad is constantly telling me about activity on the Reddit page. Oh, really? Yeah. Is he a lurker? He is a bit of a lurk. I believe he has inputted once or twice. Um, I can't remember what his name is, but it's something you could probably deduce is is my dad if you were so inclined. But he's very much a lurking. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. Well, uh, folks, the worst of saga continues today with the worst Grand Slam finals ever. That's what we're going to be talking about. I mean, it's really jolly, isn't it? But actually, it is quite quite good fun we've done a lot of research we've been watching a lot of rubbish old matches to come up with our 10 uh, that we're going to feature in today's edition and uh, yeah again there's a lot left on the cutting floor that we just weren't able to include but we'll, we'll give those honorable mentions later uh, before we do that um has anybody seen virtual tennis because i think that that probably needs some inclusion in some of the worst tennis i've ever seen <laughs> Does it bear inclusion in a tennis podcast? I don't know whether it does. Maybe not. Uh, what I would say is a valiant effort, Madrid, for, for running the uh, the virtual tournament. I think there's a, there's a lot of room for improvement. Andy Murray won it. That was nice. Uh, he donated half the money to the NHS and half the money to his fellow players who may be struggling lower down the rankings. Uh, did Kiki Burton's win the other? She did. She defended win? her title. Right. Which is... Oh. 
that is a, the answer to a quiz question in the future, isn't it? Yeah. What was what was unique about Kiki Burton's <laughs> Madrid Open title defence in the year 2020? And yeah. Mary was also a quiz question answer because he actually lost in the semi-finals, but they put him through anyway because of some massive technical glitches that happened in his semi-final that they decided that actually it was an unfair result and that he was the better player, so he should he should go through. And in true <laughs> in true Andy Murray contrarian style in the sort of jolly interview about his his victory, how do you feel to have won the Madrid Open Andy? Isn't it great? He was like, "Yeah, I really do feel like, you know, that what happened in the semi-final though is a real asterisk next to my win." <laughs> and uh, I wish I could have, you know, done it the hard way. So for, for anybody who hasn't followed this story, and particularly my mother, who won't have the first clue what I'm, we're talking about at the moment, this was, a, this was the Madrid tournament played out as a computer game because they couldn't play real tennis. And those were the results. Kiki Burton's won, Andy Murray won. Let's talk about something else. As Anne Kiothevong tweeted, she'd rather clean her toilet than watch it, which is a particularly I mean, look, th- there's obviously a place for e-sports. I'm very aware that there are a lot of people that I don't understand in the world that love watching other people play e-sports. And good luck to you. That's absolutely fine. It's just, it's just not tennis. It's just not anything yeah. even remotely like tennis. And I, think, I feel like they chose the wrong platform. Like put mm. it on something like Twitch, where gaming is is the thing, and people like watching what is it on Twitch? that. It's where you watch other people game. Mm. So this would it's have a been big perfect old thing, David. And also the gameplay of that game. I had, I only watched I don't know ten minutes of it, probably across the four days. But the gameplay was really bad on that game. It didn't look like tennis at all. Mm. That's the thing, isn't it? Like you say, it's clearly a massive business, and I don't want to s- s- sit here like a granddad saying he doesn't because un- I don't because I don't play games. I don't really understand it, but I know it's a huge business. But that didn't show it in its best light. I don't think um, is Twitch the rival platform that Gamal Feast has a deal with. Possibly, I don't that, know. That caused, to be prompted his withdrawal from the Madrid Open. Mm. And Nadal mm. had a hoax back injury briefly yeah. and then was back in the tournament. Nadal it was all did a very joke. Weird. Everything was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But fair, fair play to them for, for putting something on and, uh, and you know, not for, not for us. But there we are. Uh, so, yeah, we'll talk about rubbish Grand Slam finals in a minute. I should say I've just had a note from Solihull Simon who has Speaking been of so rubbish bored. tennis. Yeah, <laughs> he's been so bored that he's actually been listening to the tennis podcast for the first time in his whole life. He doesn't usually. Week. No, no. Uh, and he just wanted to make a, one minor correction. He's actually from Stratford. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's requested that he be renamed Stratford Simon. Uh, are, we, are we going to allow that? But he still lives in Solihull now. And it's convenient that he's from another place beginning with S. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I, I chose Solly Hall Simon because it just sounded good. And he, and that's vaguely nearby. Do, he doesn't, um, he lives in Stratford. He travels from Stratford to play tennis with you. No. Correct. What? Yeah. Why? Not Stratford in London, Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, but that's not that far away. It's still further than I would travel to play tennis with you. How far yeah, well, is that? I travelled a lot further to play te- tennis with David. Correct. He travels from Stratford the- to play tennis with you. 
Yeah, I mean that's it's a good thing. It's a good gig he's got going on there. Okay, well if he has week. no connection to Solihull whatsoever, then then yes, I think we should <laughs> rename him. Okay, fine. Right. Um, so yeah. we're going to talk about rubbish Grand Slam finals uh, today, and yeah, I've had a lot of fun watching and reading about all these, and we've we've divided up the research over the last uh, couple of days, and uh, yeah, we're going to go ten to one. Um, and what is number 10? I mean, should, we should just establish a couple of ground rules here. These are memorable matches in, in many cases for just being so bad, or and it's to take nothing away from the player who might have won really easily or played the match of their lives, but as an occasion, it has come to nothing. Um, you know, it's not, it's not dissing the person who's won the title. It's, they can only win the title, but... Inevitably, there are there are occasions that we've just looked forward to so much for one reason or another, and they've just ended up being absolute duds. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to go through all manner of reasons why they're in the top ten. What you got, Matt? Yes, well, number ten. I should say we've put it number ten because it's the one that was that is the oldest, and none of us remember it. But based on the scoreline, based on reading about it. We thought we felt it absolutely had to be in there. We just struggled to actually place its its position. But it's uh, Ken Rosewall against Jimmy Connors in the nineteen seventy four U.S. Open final, and it was won by Jimmy Connors in an hour and eight minutes. And it's the most one sided men's Grand Slam final of the Open era. Rosewall only won two games. So a 6-1, 6-love, 6-1 to Jimmy Connors. And I think what makes it kind of so bad is that it was dubbed as this this match between the sort of ageless wonder of tennis in Ken Rosewell, who was 39 at the time, against this brash, exciting, youthful Jimmy Connors, you know, a battle of the generations. But it just ended up completely exposing that age gap between them and it not being an interesting final in any respect um you know joe jarrah's in sports illustrated said that connor's made rosewell look like a middle-aged club player oh you know this is the great ken rosewell just being made to look like nothing by a fitter stronger faster jimmy connor's so rosewell was 39 connor's was 22 22. and they'd also met in the wimbledon final that year exactly and that was a drubbing as well so not quite as much (laughs) But it was like people knew, maybe knew what to expect. But at Wimbledon, Ken Rosewell had played this epic fifth set in the semis. He was tired, so people were giving him more of a chance against Jimmy Connors. But he he had absolutely no chance. There's something about an older player Mm. losing that really gets to me. I saw Tom Watson very, very nearly win the Open Golf Tournament 11 years ago and he was I think he was 60 years of age and he he was he was a couple of shots away from winning the whole thing and then his nerve just went and watching that I felt so emotional watching that seeing this this guy fighting against age and somebody younger coming up and it happens to everybody at some point or another it always gets to me yeah as a result of the um last week's podcasts I was discussing with my family over the weekend why because <clears throat> it's not just me it seems to be a Whitaker trait why pathos gets to us so much pathos and poignancy because um, it really just gets me in the gut that that um, 
that emotion and it's it's to do with the passage of time isn't it and the the irretrievable passage of time and the sense of the sense of ending and um, so much about sport and sporting greats is about kind of defying gravity so seeing seeing gravity start to take them down um which we inevitably are going to see with Serena Federer Nadal eventually Djokovic I mean we've seen glimpses of it with with Federer um it's yeah it gets you I completely understand that it really gets you it needs the piano out track of racing in the street oh, oh. yeah that's why racing in the street gets me Matt exactly yeah mm. and, and and the lyrics of that some guys give up living others stop dying little by little piece by piece it's that it's that sort of end of the career you just yeah and it always seems to be dragged out slowly oh i just i just got um a, a quiver in my tummy mention of that oh it just it really gets me yeah whenever i see ken rosewell at the australian open and he's he attends a lot of the functions and and he's always honored it, I don't know him. I've interviewed him a couple of times, but he's always such a gentleman. He's such a nice fella. Um, I know he's there's been he's been in the news the last week. He he lost his wife this last week, and uh, and we pay our respects to, to him for that. And and but the, you never hear a negative word. There's never been a. I've never heard a controvers, controversy about him. I've never heard that he was involved in anything. You know, an on court row or anything like that. And um, yeah. He's one of one of those great champions that everybody loves. I think. And as much as there's no denying that this was a bad match, and it's definitely worthy of inclusion, it sh- should be said that he is still the oldest man to reach a Grand Slam final. In, you know, in the Twice. open era. That's yeah. So he did it at Wimbledon and then the U.S. Open in this year, 1974, and that's a record that still stands. So, an incredible achievement to be there. One other note from this final is that. Another reason it perhaps lacked a bit of edge is that Connors could have been going for the calendar slam because he won the Australian Open, he won Wimbledon on grass, but he was actually denied entry into the French Open that year. Him and Yvonne Goulagong were both not allowed to play by Philippe Chatrier, who obviously his name is now on the main stadium there, but he was the president of the French Tennis Federation at the time. And he didn't allow them to play because they had contracts with World Team Tennis, which took place during the clay court swing. And he thought it was kind of, you know, they should have been playing on clay. They should have been representing those European clay court tournaments. So he, he didn't let them enter. And there was, um, there was a suit filed to the French court by Connors and Goulagon, which they lost. Um, but yeah, just an interesting that Connors could have been going for the kind of slam because he was such a dominant player albeit that the French Open was on clay and he'd won Australia on grass and Wimbledon on grass and the US on grass all in that season but it's another sort of piece of the story that's actually missing from making that moment perhaps more special with if Connors had won the calendar slam those French love to shove a spanner in the works Mm, don't they yeah some (laughs) some things don't change (laughs) right in at nine nine is uh 2009 and it's Serena Williams against Danara Safina in the 2009 Australian Open final. And Serena wins this 6-love, six 6-3 six in just 59 minutes. Um, Safina started the match with three double faults in her opening service game. 
set the tone. First set took 22 minutes. Safina has a brief moment at the start of the second set. I was watching the commentator say, oh, you know, she breaks Serena and the commentator's <laughs> voice. You just see all oh, the obliteration is over. No, mate, it wasn't. <laughs> Serena then won the next four games and it takes Safina 48 minutes to hold serve and Serena wins in 59 minutes. And by the end, the commentator has kind of changed his tune and he says it's a, it's a merciful end. It's, I mean, there are, there are plenty of Grand Slam finals that have six love sets in them. Um, but starting, having an opening set of a Grand Slam final be that one-sided, be six love, it just, I mean, it's not happened that, that many times. I think most of the times will probably be in our top ten. But the awkwardness that creates, I mean, it's just the ultimate atmosphere killer, isn't it? Because no matter how big a fan of of the person that's six love up you are. I don't think anybody wants to see that, or I hope that nobody wants to see that, really. I I commentated on that match as well for BBC Radio, and I remember the feeling going into it, because this is a player who had been world number one. She was world number one later that year, and for quite a few weeks, we, we were looking at this slightly curious stat that she was at world number one for longer than Venus Williams was, which which doesn't seem right, given that Venus, I think, won seven Grand Slam titles. But in that compressed period, Safina reached three Grand Slam finals, and she didn't come close to winning a set in any of them. And it, I think what was... What was really jarring about that final that we're covering here, six love six three against Serena Williams, is that at no point did you feel that she had a chance, including beforehand. It, it, it just even in the knockup, you you just had this really uncomfortable feeling that here we are about to have a Grand Slam final. I'm commentating on it, and you're just hoping she can do herself justice. It's not that she's not a good player; she's a very very good player, but she couldn't. It seemed like. She just couldn't handle the the moment and the occasion. And do you remember how you dealt with that and how your, your pundit dealt with that? That feeling of it would be misleading to even try and big this match up too much because we were, we were debating when we were settling on the top 10 whether it's worse that a match is, is much looked forward to and super hyped and then completely fails to live up to those expectations or whether the worst scenario is the one you just described with the Safinus Arena, where you just know in advance it's got no chance of being competitive or interesting, and so it proves. I mean, that's really tough from a broadcasting perspective to where your job is to to hypermatch and tell people why it's going to be good and worth their time. I mean, at the start of a match like that, it's a Grand Slam final. She is still, she's done really well to get there. She's obviously a heck of a capable player. So maybe this is the day. Maybe this is the day she suddenly discovers and finds out how you do it on that stage and relax and play the way you can. Um, when you get two or three games in and it's suddenly three love after a handful of minutes and, and a player is clearly just not settling and it's, it's awkward. We'll have other other matches like that a little bit later. I think you 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 end up your tone just automatically shifts down a gear, and it's hard because you don't want to be doing Serena Williams a disservice. She's doing her job. She's about to win another Grand Slam, but it just feels 
a little bit you just feel downbeat every the, the air is sucked out of the stadium that's how it felt at the time that's why this is in in this list it's awkward it's just awkward it shouldn't feel like this and on this stage and the worst person you feel for is the player herself Safina who just looked she looked like she wanted to get off the court and then but I understand why that commentator has reacted the way he or she has when she wins a game or wins a, a couple of big points because you just as a commentator you're thinking well maybe this is the moment maybe she can still get into this because it has happened but like I said, not one of those six sets in Grand Slam finals were better than 4-6 for her. Mm. And I think, for me, the reason that this match jumped out when I was thinking of worst Grand Slam finals was the way that this match was talked about. I came across this when I looked at the press conference around that tournament. This was right in the era of Federer and Nadal having some absolute epics and they would have one the next day in, in Australia. So people would end would end that tournament thinking, oh, what a, what a great place men's tennis is in with Federer and Nadal. And what was that women's final? That was kind of the narrative that was often built up around these these matches and even after Serena's just won her 10th Grand Slam one of the questions to her in the press conference was so that took 59 minutes yesterday Nadal played five hours against Fernando Vadasco would you be able to do that for that to be a question anyway it's just I just hate it because it ignores all the sort of inequalities that means that she's not going to be playing a five hour 14 minute match anyway but also to put that to her after she's just won a Grand Slam, it just leaves such a sour feeling. And just, yeah, I just remember that, that there was a few around that time and there's absolutely no reason, you know, we've got an equal split here of men's and women's matches. There have been just as many bad men's Grand Slam finals as women's matches. It happens. And the bad men's ones are dragged out for that that set longer, which you just don't yeah, want. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's by no means a slight on the game. It just, it happens. Um, one other thing from the press conference that did amuse me was Safina kind of explained her nerves saying that there were there was this extra element on the line to get to world number one you know the the, the winner would overtake Yelena Yankovic and she said she was just consumed by nerves Safina of that kind of having to deal with the Grand Slam final and the number one when it was put to Serena afterwards she said to be honest, I forgot number one was on the line. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't until the I climbed in my box and they told me. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm number one. That's cool. I Which mean, was, that sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. And also she was asked, you know, this is your 10th slam. Do you think you can reach Margaret Court on 24? And she didn't know or she claimed not to know about the Margaret Court record. She said, is that in singles? Um Whereas now, obviously, it's become such a focus. And, you know, she's talked about getting that record openly. But at the time, it wasn't really talked about. It was more Steffi Graf that people were talking about. I just thought those were a couple of interesting lines from the press conferences. For sure. That's number nine. Who's at number eight? Number eight. And I'll I'll hand over to Catherine for this one because you've done the research for this. But it is Andrea Jaeger against Martina Navratilova in the 1983 Wimbledon final. And spoiler alert, eight and seven are both (laughs) 1983 Wimbledon finals because it was a bad year for for Wimbledon finals. Um, Now, I have to say, I mean, I wasn't wasn't born for this. I I was vaguely aware um, of of this final, of the name Andrea Jaeger. I couldn't have, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't think I could have 
picked her out of a lineup then or now. Um, and I, the, the research into this match was just an absolute, uh, revelation. So it's, it's 1983, um, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett are the top two seeds at Wimbledon. They were completely expected to meet in the final. They'd already played the finals in 78, 79 and the previous year in 82. Navratilova was the three-time and defending uh, Wimbledon champion. It was a just seismic shock, something that is not talked about enough Um that Chris Everett lost in the third round uh, that year at Wimbledon because that broke her streak of 34 consecutive Grand Slam semi-finals, which we should be mentioning sort of every week on the tennis podcast. That is ridiculous. So you can only imagine just how massive that was for her to lose in the third round. So already everyone's hopes are dashed of this Everett-Navratilova um, rematch. Um, but uh, when I thought of that final, I thought Andrea Jaeger was a completely unknown youngster that had come from nowhere. She was the third seed. I had no idea that she was, she was the third seed at Wimbledon that year. Um, she had reached the French Open final the year before, uh, and she'd, she'd reached the, the French Open semi-finals a, a few weeks before in 1983. So she was, she was really well established. She was still billed as this young, exciting disruptor to to Navratilova and ever, but she was very much established. And while Navratilova was the heavy favourite for obvious reasons, people were expecting this to be a good final and an interesting clash of of generations. And it lasted fifty four minutes, um, and it started with a six love set, six love. Uh, 6-3 and it was awkward from start to finish. I mean, Martina said after the match, it wasn't a thrilling final, uh, but it was very satisfying. Um, (laughs) And um, she was actually asked after the match whether she thought she was too good for the women's tour because at that point she just seemed just so far superior to everybody else in in the draw. I think she won the the tournament without dropping a set. Uh, she replied, "I hope so. I want to try and make it as boring as I can." <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I think there was a sort of murmuring of, "Well, you succeeded," um, and that was a win that took her record for the year to forty nine and one, which is just ridiculous. She and Chris Everett at that time were just unbelievable. She'd won the women's doubles title the previous day with Pam Shriver. Um, yeah, it was, it, it, it was fascinating sort of on, on the face of it, but then doing a deeper dive into, into Andrea Jaeger, I'm, I had no idea of the backdrop to, 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 to that final. And it seems that the, the public did, didn't have any idea until 2003, the Guardian did a, um, a kind of retrospective of it, uh, speaking to both Jaeger and Navratilova, because uh, I think there were sort of rumours behind the scenes that something had gone down the night before that final. Um, 
And this is what Navratilova had to say about it. She said there were some difficulties with Andrea's father, who was her coach, um, particularly that Wimbledon. It wasn't an easy time for her, probably for for her, the court was a sort of refuge in bad times. No matter what was going on in your life, that's where you could get away from it and hopefully play well, despite it all. Sadly, that was the case with some some of the women with abusive fathers. It was the only place they were safe. I think it was a difficult match for Andrea because of that. Um, and she went on to say that she she did consider giving her a game when she was six love up. I don't. I think she in the end decided that she didn't. And luckily, Jaeger did get some games in that second set. But <clears throat> those quotes were then put uh, by the Guardian to Jaeger, and she then made the decision to to open up about what had happened. And she said basically the night before the final. She had an enormous fight with her her father, um, ended up kind of run, running away from the house she was staying in in floods of tears. Um, and the only other place she knew of or could think of to go to was Martina's house down the road. So the night before the final, the Wimbledon final, she rocks up at her opponent's house, banging on the door, crying, um, asking to be to be let in and sort of given refuge, which, which she was. Um, and she, she then said of, of, you know, ha having to then go out and play the final the next day, she said, how can you go out there and be, beat the person who's been your friend? Um, she now, she said, maybe had I kept the competitive edge, I would have won. Who knows? I guess I didn't go into the match with the same mentality I would usually have. I didn't have the same determination. Well, those comments were in 2003 and then subsequently in 2008 um, and interviews around that time, she did a, a big um, sit-down interview with ESPN. She says she tanked that final. She said because of what ha happened the night before, she didn't want to beat Martina. She felt like Martina wanted it more and she tanked that Wimbledon final and actually in that that same ESPN piece that I found you had Chris Evert saying that Andrea Jaeger had a, a reputation for tanking and Jaeger says that she tanked her French Open final in 1982 which is just unbelievable now I, I I don't think the full story of Andrea Jaeger has ever really been told or perhaps ever will be told. I get the impression that, you know, the issues with her father run incredibly deep and this all just scratches the surface and it sounds incredibly sad and distressing. But my goodness me, what a untold or rarely told story that is. Mm. I, I saw the match. I, I, was, I was only nine years old at the time, but I remember, I remember the feeling of watching it. Uh, which was going into it with sort of hope. You always did watching a Wimbledon final, a Grand Slam final. And I, we only in Britain only ever got to watch Wimbledon. We, there was no access to any other tournament at that stage that I can remember anyway. And so you come up to the finals and obviously, as you said, we're going to do the 1983 men's final in a minute as well. So it was a vintage year. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sitting down and, and I remember um, Navratilova, again, she was billed as being too good for women's tennis, which isn't fair because 
it obviously runs on other surfaces as well. It's just that in Britain, those are, you know, we, we didn't have access to half of them. So if, if you've got a tabloid newspaper who doesn't cover anything except Wimbledon, they just look at the fact that she's halfway through this nine Wimbledon title run and she's just, nobody else gets close. Well, and also actually, you, would, you would never pitch after John McEnroe's win that year, John McEnroe's too good for men's tennis. It's mm, just, you yeah. know, it just wouldn't happen. Sorry. Um, but the, the feeling was, I remember Jaeger, I remember this vividly, uh, her hitting a, a passing shot winner in that match and the crowd just erupting because of uh, partly out of sympathy and partly just hope, hope that we're going to get a contest. And what was it you said, 54 minutes? 54 I mean, minutes, yeah. You feel so short-changed. The, the other facts that, that you dug up, uh, I saw, was that, that she's become a nun. Mm. Uh, in 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 recent years, I remember hearing back when we were on the Champions Tour in the late nineties. Catherine, she whoa had whoa joined whoa! The, all right, I had joined late noughties. <laughs> thank you very much. I, I joined in the late nineties, but apparently in nineteen ninety three, um, she was she was running a, a foundation to help seriously ill children. I remember hearing about that because players would come to the Champions Tour event in at the Royal Albert Hall. And they'd have requests from her to sign things, to be auctioned off, to raise money for this this foundation. Um, so I, you kind of heard about things just, and 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 I, my only recollection of her before that is being this seventeen year old who just kind of froze on the day. Yeah, she. I mean, she's 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 an incredible story. She. Uh... Yeah, she she'd beaten Martina before. She'd beaten all of all of the greats, but she talks about how she didn't really. She loved tennis, but she didn't really like winning. She said she, she always felt like the opponent wanted it more than her. So she felt like it would be kind of unjust to take that from them, which is crazy. And she ended up blowing out her shoulder at the French Open in 84 um, and pretty much never played again. She had three surgeries um, between 84 and 87 before officially, officially retiring. It's a sad story. And in that ESPN documentary that you mentioned, I think she said that she always felt like people wanted her to win more than she actually wanted to win. It probably links in with with her relationship with her father. It's it's it must be an, sort of pr- that outside pressure that you carry yourself mm. must just be so overbearing and overwhelming that you know I, I could understand why she thought sometimes in finals, oh, I just I just can't. It sounds bad to say tanking but it's almost a relatable feeling and a a relatable emotion I just can't do it Mm. well look she it's been put to her the the t-word has been put to her and she hasn't shied away from it um Mm. she has that's she has said yes I I tanked that final and apparently the the 82 final as well now whether that's actually the case, whether her and, it, it, it read on what tanking means is the same as everyone else's, I don't know. She says, she says, and Martina says the same that she, uh, she and Martina are still friends, but they have not ever talked about that final. It's like an uh, it's unspoken n- it's, word between them. Mm. Yeah, it, it's not one that gets played back no. during <laughs> no. rain delays. They won't be playing it on the BBC this year during their no. Wimbledon repeats. That year at Wimbledon, I. I I managed to find the BBC closing montage for their <laughs> for their coverage of the the fortnight. Um, I love a closing montage. I didn't particularly love this closing montage, which was set to Chaz and Dave's Rabbit. 
but was it fitting um no it felt really i mean obviously i hadn't i hadn't just i just watched the two weeks of wimbledon previously but it felt like a really tenuous kind of they just clipped out a load of shots of tennis players like talking like during the match or you know going up to an umpire or having a word with themselves or something which kind of is something that happens a fair bit during any grand slam tournament right some some producer had obviously gone, guys. We need we need a hook for this. We can't just play a load of points from bad matches that nobody remembers. Um, <laughs> someone went, Chaz and Dave Rabbit, <laughs> and they went, Yep, yeah, we're running with it. So, Catherine, Saturday's been a disappointment. Mm. Navratilova's won the title again, but don't worry, the men's final is still to come. So. Strap yourselves in. What happened? <laughs> Strap yourselves in for the big John McEnroe Chris Lewis match that everybody uh, was expecting and hoping for. Um, Chris Lewis, not the cricketer. Chris Lewis, not the cricketer. He is very much not the first Chris Lewis that comes up when you put Chris <laughs> Lewis into Google, um, which is a shame for him. Um, it, I mean, look, he he was a junior Wimbledon champion in 1975 he was a junior world number one he was ranked i think 91st coming into that wimbledon he had had a couple of years in the total wilderness but he had been as high as um i think 19 a couple of years before um so he wasn't an absolute nobody he was somebody that had shown a lot of promise and people were expecting to come through but just hadn't in the way that uh that that we might have thought, much like Ricardus Barrancas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and He's not getting to the Wimbledon final. <laughs> similarities um, with the kind of expectation of Novatilova ever playing out, because that was kind of the, the narrative of, of the time. So everyone was expecting McEnroe-Connors final. They'd met in the Queen's final uh, a couple of weeks before, which Connors had won. That had been a really good final. Jimmy Connors lost out that Wimbledon to Kevin Curran, uh, in round four, who Chris Lewis went on to beat in the semis. And that was a really entertaining, epic semi-final. Well, OK, maybe epic is a step too far. But it was a really entertaining final, uh, semi-final on that Friday. Um, three, three hours and 45 minutes, which on grass would have been... Yeah, and there was quite a lot of speculation it? that Chris Lewis would have been tired uh, going into the final. He'd lost a bit of pop on his serve, I think, and his movement didn't quite look as sharp. But frankly... I, I don't think it would have mattered if he had been as 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 sharp as a knife on on that Sunday because John McEnroe was utterly sublime. It was six two six two six two um, to McEnroe, and the opening paragraph of the New York Times write up of the match um, sums it up perfectly. It said the artistry and mechanics that separate the good from the great in tennis were dramatised at Wimbledon today when John McEnroe won his second men's singles title. And it was, it was just a massive golf in class and it was a good player against a great player. And that is what it looked like every single moment of, of the match. Um, McEnroe only dropped one set at Wimbledon that year in the second round to the world number 86 Romanian Florin now I've never heard of this player so I'm I'm certainly going to end up butchering the name so I apologize in advance Segus Segus Senu does that ring any bells David 1983 correspondent David Law help me out of it 
<laughs> no, I can't say it does. Right, okay. Uh, well, anyway, he took a set of John McEnroe in, uh, in 1983 Wimbledon. So well done, uh, Florin. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was exactly like a couple of others we've already described. It never felt like it, there was a moment when it was going to get even the remotest bit competitive. The writing was on the wall from the very first point. Chris Lewis could not return John McEnroe's serve. He won McEnroe the first 17 points of the match on serve. He only lost nine points on serve all match. He never dropped serve or even faced a break point. He never even had a love 30 on the McEnroe serve. 15-30 was as close as Lewis got. Oh. It was it was unreal on serve. The, the, the interesting thing is when it comes to inclusion or not on this list, you could have gone, well, a year later, McEnroe beat Connors even more easily uh, for, for, for the loss of fewer games. But this final was sandwiched between those two McEnroe-Connors finals. The McEnroe-Connors final in 82, I remember so well. Connors fist-pumping his way to, to victory. Uh, the one in 84, McEnroe produced what most people regard as his greatest ever performance to just destroy Connors. It wasn't a contest because McEnroe was so good. And I think that a little bit like when there have been matches we've seen from Federer being so good that you end up feeling like you're at a performance, you're at a, a an incredible musical performance or theatrical performance of somebody just showing how incredible they are. And that in itself is is entertainment. This was, I mean, McEnroe was very, very good, but he actually didn't need to be that good that day. Yeah, and a quote from him that, well, a few typically entertaining John McEnroe quotes after the match. I mean, Chris Lewis was just just bursting with praise for John McEnroe um, and didn't seem to be rueful or regretful or, you know, just said it was still the greatest occasion of my life and was just kind of in awe of McEnroe, which which maybe was was part of the part of the problem. It's rare that that matches with that dynamic of sort of hero worship or or um, play out to be great contests. But a really interesting quote from John McEnroe after that match was, "I'm glad I was able to win it the way people want me to win it." And I'm trying to interpret what he means by that. I mean, it is interesting that he had he he the crowd were extremely worn to him during that match. It was obviously he transitioned past the sort of real super brat days he was he had earned some warmth warmth from the Wimbledon crowds and when he was asked about not facing one of his great rivals in in the Wimbledon final because it was the first time that he hadn't faced Borg or Connors he said is it less enjoyable because Borg or Connors weren't here it's more enjoyable because I won easier (laughs) which is just so great it wasn't expected to be a great match and it wasn't a great match. <laughs> and there was a good story from Mary about who was in the commentary box that day. She told us that Bjorn Borg was calling the match and and he was alongside Dick Enberg, who was dramatizing it and giving it the big sell, you know, as he would. And he and he and he cut to Bjorn Borg to introduce Chris Lewis. Give it the big sell. And Bjorn Borg just deadpan said, He has no chance. <laughs> Before it had even started. And then Dick Enberg had to pick up from that and, you know, talk about how miracles happen and all that kind of thing. Um, 
that was Bjornborg's think... uh, foregone conclusion moment, except mm. that he can pick them better than me. I don't think uh, he had many more commentary days. <laughs> that is so great. He, I should have ditched all of my backstory and just... He was bang just, on. Yeah, absolutely. And yet he yeah. didn't get another gig. Oh. The um, Just to finish and, and bury 1983 Wimbledon once and for all, this is the final uh, paragraph from the New York Times piece on, on the men's final, summing up the whole tournament. He said the ease with which McEnroe and Martina Navratilova won their singles title stripped some of the luster from the tournament. There were also a few collective sighs for another former champion, Billie Jean King, who lost a bid for her 21st Wimbledon title when John Lloyd and uh, John Lloyd of Britain and Wendy, Wendy Turnbull of Australia defeated her and Steve Denton in the mixed doubles final. So they've they've ended on a and I mean obviously for for. GB, that was a great moment. John Lloyd winning the the mixed doubles, I but it. the New York Times was, was like, uh, <laughs> it's, all, "It's all rubbish." <laughs> Steve Denton had the biggest serve I had ever seen, and he, uh, people when when he served at Wendy Turnbull, flat out <laughs> body serves. Honestly, you would just hold your breath. Oh, the um, anyway, I, I know I've already said final words, but the you know you love an aggro handshake, David. Oh, yeah. You, the, the, the scenario in which you're least likely to get an aggro handshake is when one player is demolished another, right? Because even the most competitive cutthroat player usually shows a bit of compassion in that scenario. Not John McEnroe. It is the <laughs> most brusque handshake I've ever seen. He's just absolutely killed the guy on the biggest stage in in sport, and it's he barely looks at him. It's <laughs> it's it's amazing. And still, Chris Lewis was gushing over yeah. him afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you remind, it reminds me of two things from McEnroe on the Champions Tour. One in 1999, when Connors finally, and only once in his whole career, ag- agreed to play the Royal Albert Hall. Um, and he used to play a rival senior tour in America. And McEnroe was trying to basically provoke him into coming over to London to play. And McEnroe beat him 6-love, six 6-1. Um <laughs> Hadn't Connors had like four hip replacements though? You know how you know how every player win or lose does an on court interview? Connors refused to do one. <laughs> on the champions tour. Yeah. Oh my God. He walks past me and I and he said, Let Mac do it like that. Uh, and then McEnroe's just stood there with this massive grin on his face because <laughs> he'd done it. And then there was the other one in twenty ten where we were both, Catherine, when McEnroe had finally convinced Lendl to join the tour. And they, they'd both won their lead-up matches and McEnroe couldn't wait to play Lendl. And then McEnroe's winning and Lendl, halfway through the second set, retired with a back injury. And McEnroe throws his arms into the air and does like a, a lap, a running lap of the court, celebrating with the crowd right in Lendl's he face. He did a victory lap retired. while Lendl was hobbling off the court. Oh, it my God. was amazing. <laughs> Ah, oh, those are the days. Um, right, so that's uh, McEnroe and Chris Lewis, a worthy uh, inclusion. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. We're now going to jump forward by 11 years to... Pete Sampras's reign. He won seven Wimbledon titles. He was returning to Wimbledon in 1994, having beaten Jim Courier in the final the year before. And people were still very much trying to work out who who he was because he'd, he'd won the US Open as a teenager at age 19. Then he'd gone through a couple of really lean years where he just kept getting beaten, seemingly by being unable to handle the moment. And he came into this final having said beforehand, I've realized now how much I hate to lose. And um, I'd had a couple of bad losses against Edberg in the US Open final when you you got the sense that he kind of wasn't 100% engaged. And two years prior, he'd played Ivan Izovich in the 92 Wimbledon and Goran had just served him off the court. I remember, and, and I would say that Sampras tanked at the end because he was just walking side to side he was so fed up of seeing the ball go past him on the serve and not being able to get anywhere near it that he was just not not trying really to re- he just he just broken his heart Goran ended up reaching the final and lost that absolute classic to Andre Agassi a year passes where Goran goes off the rails and the previous year had been throwing his racket and what all does going, Goran into, going off the rails look like yeah losing losing his mind on the court throwing his racket all the time right. 94 he comes in and he's he's made a bet with his manager and his coach that he's not going to throw his racket the entire championship <laughs> and sure enough he gets to the final beats becker in the semi-finals without throwing his racket Sampras has beaten Todd Martin in the semis in four sets, and here they are meeting in the final. Everybody's looking forward to it. But this match was 
is really credited, I think, or accused of being responsible for changing tennis at Wimbledon because of the sheer lack of rallies. A lot of talk about power tennis at that time, the racket starting to change, big serve taking over. And in this particular match, which Sampras won 7-6, love there, were only, there was only one point in the entire match out of 206 points that went beyond five strokes, including the serve. So there were only f- four rallying strokes in a, in a rally once in the, in the match after the serve. And I remember the following day, and I was a huge Sampras fan back then, and I, so I, I loved the results, uh, but uh, I mean... It was it was a yawn fest. It was so boring to watch these incredibly short rallies, just power serves being hit. And the the following day, the newspapers really got stuck into it. I remember the the headline in the Sun newspaper. Now, admittedly, it is the Sun, but the Sun newspaper headline was Pete Sampras. <laughs> <laughs> they hated him. They decided they didn't like him, and. He was boring, and he was and bring back Andre, and that was the whole narrative of Pete Sampras is that he's boring and that he doesn't he doesn't give you any any excitement. There's no aggro, there's no drama, and yeah, I mean he, he and Ivanovic just spent a couple of hours serving at one another. Having watched it back over the weekend, what I would say is I think that that. Does Sampras a disservice? I think Sampras's tennis that that uh, that day was was incredible. Um, and in, when he won the the third set six love, he came up with some incredible passing shots. And you could see that Goran, having lost the second set tiebreak, had just gone. He just he just completely gone. Um, and towards the end, he basically started to lose his his bet about throwing the racket. Um, but what what was quite interesting to me is that. I think that British media coverage did skew the way we looked at that match and the way that I certainly looked at it, which, and I would still put it more or less in the top 10, but it's not as bad having watched it back as I thought it was. It's just that tennis was changing and we were having to get used to a lack of touch and more, more power. And I think what, what helped the, cause I watched the NBC American coverage in this replay. I think what helped with that was that they immediately did a, an on-court interview with Sampras and by Bud Collins and that showed a different side to Sampras he obviously knew Bud Collins and he he put his arm around him when he came up to him and he was clearly emotional about having won the title again and having discovered how much winning means to him and at that time Wimbledon didn't do on-court interviews at all you didn't have Sue Barker come out for the trophy ceremony and do an interview with the players it was just hand them the trophy and lift it so I feel like People just didn't get to know Sampras, but the way American TV handled it, they definitely helped bring him alive. Um, but yeah, the just the tenor, the the kind of you find just you know how sometimes Catherine, you say I find myself looking at my phone in in matches where players are taking too long between points. You almost find yourself doing that on service games that there's just not a chance of a break. Mm. because the serves are just too big and nothing's happening. Well, you said, David, that the ball was in play for five minutes in the first hour of that match. You know, it's 55 minutes of 
dead time, essentially, walking between points, sitting down at the change of ends. I mean, it's easy. It's kind of easy to say now, but I would struggle to get into that as a sport. I mean, Catherine, maybe you, you could comment on this because, you know, your formative years of tennis were the 90s. I mean, for me, what got me into tennis was that kind of, well, it was the aesthetic of it, really. It was the rallies. It was the kind of physicality combined with the artistry of, you know, certainly the early mid-2000s. You know, the matches that stick out for me mainly are Nadal matches in terms of the rallies, and that's what got me into tennis. Um, but that but that framing of Sampras as boring is actually a bit of a misunderstanding, really, of tennis because there's always two involved. And no one was saying Sampras Agassi was boring it was the fact that it was both of them playing the same style is what made it boring and one of my favorite things in tennis was to watch Sampras against Agassi when Agassi was serving when it was Agassi when it was because Sampras had so much more to his game and that's something that the commentators there was Dick Emberg Bud Collins and John McEnroe in the early stages of his commentary career talking about how these guys can do so much more than just serve they are better players than that we're just not getting to see it Mm. Yeah, and and a bit like we talk about or or recently ish have talked about Simona Halep. Agassi was like the magic ingredient to make a match in those early yes. mid nineties, wasn't he? Because because actually Sampras and Ivanovic was still the norm at that stage. Most players were were serve volleyers, big servers. Short points was the norm, and Agassi came along as this disruptor, and he was so often the the common denominator. In, in great matches and great match-ups. Um, and it's, it, 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 his absence suddenly was, 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 really, was really felt, wasn't it? It was, you know, once we'd got used to having Agassi around and being that in tennis, him sort of dropping off. He, he was the surprise within Wimbledon that he could actually compete mm. with this style of tennis with his baseline and return game. But I think the difference was I watched Becker against Cash from 88. Just YouTube went on to that at the weekend while I was finishing up watching another one. And the difference was, yes, Becker had a big serve, but you rarely got two players who could just serve each other off the court like that. You would get serve volley matches, but there would be lots of dinks and and exchanges at the net and and in this match you just didn't get that at all um and and so it was it was too staccato it was it was dull um and it's 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 rubbishness directly led to the rubbishness of our our next entry yes so we so we think anyway yeah which is nelbandi and hewitt wimbledon 2002 which is the equal and opposite reaction of Sampras Ivanisevic, as you said, this is a match with no serve and volley, not a single serve and volley on grass between Hewitt and Nalbandi. And Hewitt wins it 6-1, 6-3, 6-2. And again, the criticism leveled at it is that it's boring, but for the, for the other reason, because all the rallies are the same. I mean, and, and I watched quite a lot of it over the weekend and, it's a fair criticism. Every rally is the same. And actually what struck me is how sort of puny they both looked. There's no, they're sort of, they're rallies, but they're not powerful rallies. They're just sort of hitting the ball back to each other. Now there's tremendous timing and precision. Of course there is. And, and the movement of Hewitt in particular is incredible and in it's passing shots, but 
it's not sort of exciting rallies. It's just repetitive. And it was also a match with two rain delays, which I think really disrupted the rhythm of it. I mean, Nalbandian was an, was an interesting story because he'd never played a scene, well, a professional tournament on grass before that Wimbledon. It was his Wimbledon debut and he reached the final and he was the first man to get to a Wimbledon final in their debut since 1951. So it was a, it was a good story, but he also came with a little bit of edge because he had played junior Wimbledon and he'd been disqualified <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when he failed to turn up on time for his semi-final match. Which is amazing, which is kind of disqualifying yourself, isn't it? Not showing yeah. up. I mean, is that not just a withdrawal, not showing well, up? Well, he blamed the All England Club for oh. moving the match and not telling him. Right. Of course okay. he did. Um, I'm sure that went down a treat. <laughs> David Nalbandian in grass court disqualifications. <laughs> That's Discuss. another podcast. Um, and then you had Hewitt, on the other hand, who, when he first started playing on grass at Queen's, he admitted that, in, you know, in the late 90s, he admitted he tried to serve and volley, tried to mix up his game. It didn't work. But then he realised that he could beat these guys playing his own game. So he thought, well, I'm just going to do that then. I'm not, I, don't, I don't care what other people think. I'm just going to do that. And it, he, and it worked. He'd beaten, he was a dominant player he'd on He'd beaten grass. Tim Henman in the semis, hadn't he? And that mm. was just a matchup that Tim Henman could not cope with. I mean, it was... Particularly on that court yeah. that year, because it's it was difficult to get anybody on the record about this. And, and I'm sure it was more... It wasn't... I'm sure it was more gradual overall, but the difference between 01 when Goran beat Henman in the semis and then beat Rafter in the final and all of it was serve and volley, the difference between that and 12 months later watching Henman try to find a way to chip and charge and serve and volley against Leighton Hewitt. Admittedly, as you say, Catherine, his worst nightmare as a sort of serve and volleyer, this guy who had the best returns and lobs and speed around the court, but it was... I, I watched that match and I watched the final and it was like they were playing on sort of mud. It had no life in it, that court, at all. Something had changed. Yeah, well, Goran says that 2001 was absolutely his last chance to, to win Wimbledon, that there is n no chance on, on the, with what that court became, that his game was, was Wimbledon winning worthy. That's not a good sentence, is it? But I'll I'll hope that I got my point across vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> I do find it interesting how the next year, 2003, if you watch that final, Federer and Philippoussis are mainly serving volleying on that court. So I think part of it is the court. Clearly there was a difference, but also it's a mindset and it's, a, it's having that ability in your game. I think that's an underrated aspect of Federer's career massively that he won Wimbledon serve and volleying one year and the next win it and the next year he won it from the baseline you did, know, to have you, that variety in his game do you think that after the the horror that was the 2002 final did they speed it up again though they must I mean, have made some adjustment some after adjustment. that I, I think personally one is weather makes a difference and two it's just styles Really, I mean, I'm not saying it hasn't, it wasn't slow. It did look slower. It felt slower. It was a strange then, Wimbledon all over, though that 2002 yeah. one, wasn't it? But if you if you put up, if you put up, I remember a few years later, Ivo Karlovic played Max Murnia, a match I covered on an outside court. And I mean, there was there were no rallies in that. It didn't make you could have made it, put it on treacle, and there would have been no rally. That was David that was, getting the tall guys yeah. again. <laughs> Single use gag. <laughs> 
<laughs> you had to cover Mini of... against Karlovich. Yeah. If you stick, <laughs> uh, if you stick Leighton Hewitt Come uh, a long way, uh, against a serve volleyer, uh, any serve volleyer, and you were guaranteed a fun match, but you stick him against another baseliner who maybe didn't go for that much, it wasn't going to be great fun. Mm. Um, and it, But I, the other thing that's interesting to me is now Bandian, I think, became a way better player after that. He had his best years in terms of form later, and yet he never reached another Grand Slam final. Mm. It's yeah. a crying shame, really, that that is his only Grand Slam final appearance where he didn't, as you said, he became a better player, but he also didn't do himself justice in this final. He had a bad day. Um, so that's really on our list for a kind of existential moment in tennis. Is this what we want tennis to become? And also, I think, People were debating whether Hewitt would be an interesting champion, an interesting dominant force. I think I read some stuff, you know, some people were very much saying he is going to become a dominant force. But a a shout out to Will Buckley writing in The Guardian, who wrote that uh, he's a counterpuncher who lacks either Andre Agassi's ability to win from the back of the court or Jimmy Connors' talent for defusing the big servers. He, you know, it was he was onto something there. Hewitt obviously was a great player but we came to see in the years that followed that he maybe wasn't quite as great as he seemed at the time when it felt like he could go on to dominate but i think that the game changed the re i think if everybody had carried on serving and volleying against him he he would have been as good as agassi and connor's at diffusing them but people stopped serving a volley. Although there was a point also made that in the three Wimbledons before that, he'd lost to serve volleyers, just really good serve volleyers. He'd lost but to Boris Becker, Gamble, Escudé. Sure, but that's not Wimbledon. No, I, I understand that. But I mean, style-wise, he'd, he'd managed to, to, to succeed on grass. I, I, think, I think he would have... I think he would have done better overall. I mean, it's a fair point, though. If Karlovic beat him in 03, um, Becker beat him, as you say. So, yeah, may- maybe that's maybe that was the problem, the really big servers um, on mm. grass. Right. Let's, let's move it on to 2004, Roland Garros. And, well, to be honest, it really struck us when we were doing our research that there were – there was a series of Roland Garros women's finals in the in the 2000s. I think all of them from 2002 to 2013 finished in straight sets. Some of them better than others. There was a lot of NR victories in there, which were very one-sided. But there were some good ones in there as well. But the very much the nadir is <laughs> 2004 and Meskina against Dementieva, Catherine. Yeah, I mean, if... If number one on our list wasn't such a clear-cut number one and and all will be revealed in due time, there is definitely an argument for this being number one because it was awful. Uh, Mesquina (laughs) defeated uh, one of her best friends, childhood friends, Elena Dementieva, 6-1, 6-2 in 59 minutes. a, a line from the New York Times write-up of the final says, if the Coupe Suzanne Longlen had not been shimmering in the president's box and the usual luminaries had not been sitting in the front row in their Panama hats, it would have been easy to mistake this for the denouement of a second-round encounter. Um, and that's what it felt like throughout. It was so, so flat and awful. I mean, it was a slightly strange tournament um 
all over Justine Henin, who had been just completely dominant at that tournament. Um, she was the defending champion in world number one. She lost in the second round um, to... Uh, Tatiana Garbin. Garbin. Yeah. That's another answer to a nerdy quiz question, um, which was just such a, such a weird result. Serena Williams lost to Capriati in the quarters. That was a good match. But then Moschina took out Capriati. Um, Moresmo was the third seed and Dementieva had, had taken her out. Um, Moschina had beaten Venus Williams, who was one of the top seeds at the time. Um, but the real narrative of the final... Um, and her career, I suppose, was that Elena Duentieva, in her own words, could not serve. She she won the toss and elected to receive, and that was something that was remarked upon by most of the write-ups um, of that final because it just set the tone. In seven service games, Duentieva hit 10 double faults, uh, including three while serving at 2-4 in the final set. Um, and after the first double fault in that game, Dementieva turned towards her, her coach, Olga Morozova, uh, and her mother, Vera, who was uh, sat, both sat in the, her player's box, and she yelled something in Russian. Um, and she explained in the post-match press conference that what she'd yelled was, I hate my serve, and she added in the press conference, which is true. Um she, in that same press conference, which I wasn't in it, I wasn't there, obviously, but it sounds like just a thoroughly harrowing affair, really. She said she was asked how good a player she might be if her serve was as good as the rest of her game, which, I mean, she'd have been within her rights to say piss off when being asked that question. <laughs> um, but she she replied... Um, well, if I can play the final in a Grand Slam without a serve. And then she paused, started to cry, hung her head, and then just said, I don't know how to serve. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so bleak. Um, she said, I was waiting for this moment all my life and I just couldn't handle the pressure. Um, although it wasn't the final that, that everyone was wanting be before the tournament. They were the sixth and ninth seeds. Um, their head-to-head -head going in was four and four. All three of their previous matches on clay had been really competitive. It, it Although sort of a slightly tough sell in terms of the, the names and the, the personalities, it, it should have been a decent contest. It should have been a decent match with decent tennis. And it was just not in any way. It was so uncomfortable Every time Dementieva's ball toss went up and her ball toss was extremely wavered, it was it was like the crowd held their breaths. And the added element of the two of them being being really close friends, I mean, that makes even the most competitive matches pretty awkward. Moschina barely celebrated when she when she won the final point, barely celebrated at all. The biggest applause of the afternoon by quite some margin was when Dementieva delivered her runners up speech in fluent French because she'd um she'd been to attended French school in Moscow. Um yeah, I mean it should have been a kind of 
an important moment for tennis. She was the first Russian ever to win a Grand Slam, which is crazy now. She did it one slam before Maria Sharapova Kuznetsova went on to win that US Open. That was kind of the start of a big, you know, the Russians are coming story. By the end of that year, there were five Russians in the top 10. It, and yet it's it's completely forgotten and it's rightly forgotten because <laughs> it was awful absolutely awful oh dear i've spent the whole the whole of that description just kind of clenching and just feeling goosebumps and a bit of, like nabandian really dementieva should have should have had more to her name than that grand slam final thank goodness she won the olympic gold and i hope that she she treasures that um because she is one of the best players never to win a slam um, and I, I do find the question of, you know, what could she have been with a better serve pretty redundant because what would anybody be if their their weakness wasn't their weakness? You know, I, I, I would be a world number one if I had a better serve and serve forehand and backhand. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a ridiculous <laughs> but question. But it was so jarring, though, because because she was so good from the baseline to have a, a serve that didn't look like a professional serve. It looked like somebody just dollying it over the net like you might in the park. And there's something so harrowing about a player's weakness being their serve. Because, again, it's one of Mary Carrillo's rules. Hide your weakness. You cannot hide your mm. serve. It's the only shot you always are guaranteed to have to hit. Well, obviously a return as well. But and there's that silence. It's so exposed. It's like constantly being on the first tee and not being able to tee off. Like everyone's watching you when you're about to serve. Yeah, it and looked like she was it, being. It yeah. looked like she was having to, to borrow um, an analogy of John McEnroe's. It looked like she was having her pants pulled down out there. <laughs> it was so exposing. Honestly, it's it so, yeah, it's such a good point, Matt. It really did. It looked like sort of bullying to keep making her serve. Yeah, you almost sort of it's started like thinking, can, can you let her? do it differently well i'm surprised she didn't underarm serve or something because it, it just it felt kind of wrong <laughs> i feel i feel like i'd be watching the serve from behind my yeah. hand and yeah then, right oh now i can watch the rest of the rally so oh. uncomfortable don't watch it folks i know sometimes <laughs> things are so bad they're good but this was not one of those i promise uh, speaking of which number three go for it matt <laughs> This is the most recent entry on our list. It's the 2017 Wimbledon men's final. Just coincidentally, how many of them do seem to be Wimbledon finals? Um, Federer versus Chilic, which I can't watch. I it's you know in the in the same for a different reason. It's it's unwatchable, and and it's because of what happened to Chilic. I mean, the backstory is that he was a threat to Federer. Really, he should have been a threat to Federer because he'd beaten him in the 2014 US Open. They'd had a thrilling match at Wimbledon the year before, where Chilic was two sets up against Federer, and Federer came back to win in five. I remember personally, we'd moved house that week and I remember sort of ordering my parents to set the TV up before anything else so I could watch those Wimbledon finals that weekend. You know, I was, I was, I was hyped for this. This, was, this should have been a good match. And what we didn't know is that Chilich went in with blister problems that he'd been having in the semifinals against Query, And he said that the physios had basically been with him every minute 
between him finishing the semi-final and him starting the final, but they just couldn't make it better. He was just in pain. And the match starts with Chilich seeming okay. You know, it's a competitive first four games. He gets a break point. He doesn't take it. Then Federer breaks. He wins the set. And then things start to become clear that Chilich has got a major, major problem. And it all sort of builds up to the 6-3, 3-love changeover where Chilich is in tears in the in the second set. And there's all sorts of speculation about what it is. Is it an injury? Is it um, stress? Is it anxiety? Is it illness? You know, no one really knows because the physio, the doctor come out, but they don't actually do anything. Um, and Chilich is there with his head in his towel, sobbing, you know, hyperventilating almost. And it's only after the second set, which he loses 6-1, where he gets treatment on his foot. And then he reveals afterwards that it was blisters. And he said, it wasn't the blister that made me cry. It was just knowing that I was in a Wimbledon final against Federer and I had no chance. I could not compete. I couldn't push off. I couldn't move. And that the weight of that feeling just was overwhelming and it just came out in tears. And unfortunately for all the viewers, it led to just a match which was inevitable what the scoreline was going to be from, you know, very early on. There was no drama, no competitiveness, no edge. And it's really weird atmosphere because Federer's winning a Wimbledon final. Normally, that would be a sort of joyous occasion for most people on centre court. And yet they kind of found themselves rooting for Chilich because they wanted a match. But, oh, no, we can't root against Federer. So it was this really eerie, weird feeling in the stadium as well. And Federer didn't have to do anything spectacular at all. You know, you watch Federer matches. Normally, there's something that you remember, some point, something he did. You watch, you watch that. There's, there's just nothing. It's just, it's just a sort of straightforward demolition of an injured man, and ugh, it's, it's, it's really tough watch. I commentated on the second set, the oh. six-point set, <laughs> and oh, God. The, the, where, where we're positioned in the BBC Radio commentary box is court level in the corner, and I remember watching the first set over the shoulder of my co-commentator Russell Fuller. And there was a point in, I think, those first four games, Matt, where Chilich won an extended rally and he was, and it was a brilliant rally. And I remember thinking, this could be really good. Mm. He's got a chance here. You know, he's looking, he looks good. I had heard the rumors from Pat Cash, who was in our commentary box. He'd said he'd, he'd been in the locker room and seen some concern around the Chilich camp. He didn't know what it was about, but they all looked pretty, pretty worried about something. Um, and then you saw this rally and you thought, no, no, we're, we're on in, in for a treat here. The first set comes and goes and it's, you know, it was mildly jarring at the time, I thought. But then when I sat down, I didn't expect to be commentating on, on a non-entity the way I ended up doing it at three love. When, when Chilich starts to cry and you realize that as a commentator it's a it's a challenge i've not really had before like that of trying to well i guess strike the right tone um felt really sorry for him um you know it's it's it how can you not to see a, a guy who's so nice he's such a lovely guy is marin chilich and to see him just 
distraught like that and not and we and as you, as you say we just didn't know why and I'm, I'm actually glad in the end that it became clear that there was a that there was such a bad blister problem that at least you you know we had some understanding of that but not everybody was as sympathetic as as i recall at the time and uh, and i think that that's really unfortunate yeah i mean it, it, it this was this was before um the andy murray crying in in cincinnati um in washington sorry um moment which felt like such a uh, if you'll excuse the accidental pun kind of watershed moment for for men expressing themselves in 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 tennis i wonder if the same moment with marin cilic crying would be received slightly differently or perceived slightly differently now kind of after that moment with andy murray and the way he's kind of embraced it and used it as a as a a platform to to kind of promote the message that it's absolutely fine for for men and for champions to show vulnerability um, in competitive situations, um, as uncomfortable it was as it was, I kind of, I kind of loved that it it came out in that way um, from Aaron Chilich. I just hated the hated the response to it. What what could be more devastating for a, for a top level athlete to be in that situation to be to be living your dream in a in a situation where you you should be, you know, as you said, Matt, that was billed as a potentially really interesting competitive match. And he was unable to, to be the person and the player that he knew he could be. And that must just be devastating. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty harrowing. This is a downer, isn't it? What, what a downer <laughs> this pod is. Whose idea was this? And I mean, leading that, chorus of terrible opinion on Marion Chilich crying was Piers Morgan on Twitter and uh, you know he was just being I mean he always is an insufferable oaf oaf really on there but it particularly and it stands out on that day just he was tweeting all sorts of things about how Chilich was sort of letting himself down and not being a proper sportsman and you know who does this and because it's Wimbledon People who only follow Wimbledon would have just seen Marin Cilic and some people would have thought that Piers Morgan was right. And, I, you know, you get this sort of two-week brigade of fans who would have just, that would be their memory now of Marin Cilic because they'd have seen that and it would have been amplified by someone like Piers Morgan talking about it on Twitter like that with his platform. And I absolutely detest that because, as you said, Marin Cilic wasn't doing anything wrong in that moment and also he's just the nicest guy and i got myself blocked by piers morgan for my response to him <laughs> well, good for you <laughs> david that, is, that has remained the case you're um, blocked by piers morgan yeah my life has been so much more pleasant since so uh, Respect. I'm, I'm glad that happened uh so any, anything else about that lovely number three entry to it to it to re- you know, no, let's, me, let's move some... on to even more depressing things. <laughs> okay, number two here is coming your way, folks. Uh, it didn't take long, so at least we won't, we won't be too uh, indisposed by it. Steffi Graf against Natasha Zvereva in the French Open final of 1988. Graf was the all-conquering player. She went on to win the Golden Slam that year, all four major tournaments and the Olympic gold. 
and even I think she won a Grand Slam doubles title as well. But she was up against a young Russian in Zvereva who was 17 years of age. A lot of excitement around her. And the match lasted 32 minutes. It's making the 59 minutes of earlier. <laughs> yeah. 32 minute Grand Slam final. Two sets, six love, six love. I watched all of it. Uh, in a in a swift half an hour over the weekend, and I mean it was very uncomfortable from her Zvereva position. I mean she struggled to keep the ball in court a lot of the time. A lot of that again because Graf was just a nightmare to play against. She was just knifing this backhand slice at her perpetually from the baseline onto her toes. Really, it felt like, and Zvereva was just trying to shovel the ball back and just couldn't get any sort of rhythm at all. It, there's only ever been one other Grand Slam final as a as a double bagel and you have to go back to Wimbledon in 1911 and Dorothy Lambeth Chambers beating DP Boothby six love six love there was a, a one hour rain delay in the match that trebled the length of the uh, time that the crowd were um, occupied and afterwards, Zvereva was just unable to address them at all. She said, she said afterwards in the press conference, I knew what I had to say. I just couldn't do it. And, uh, and I remember watching the match at the time. It was so awkward and uncomfortable to watch and, and to see this player, this young teenager, just unable to perform on the day against one of all the all-time greats. But Zvereva went on to have an incredible career, 18 Grand Slam doubles titles, two mixed doubles titles, and she did beat Graf and Selish at Wimbledon in singles 10 years later uh, in 1998. But that one really stands out. It was kind of the best of times and the worst of times, that French Open run for Zvereva, because that's, you know, that's kind of the pinnacle of her singles achievements, and yet it will always be remembered for that love and love. I just, I find it kind of almost even more cruel that there was a rain delay in it because if you're having a shocker what you what you're praying for is a rain delay you're thinking please (laughs) just send some rain get me back into the into the locker room and let me compose myself but obviously obviously that didn't happen yeah it's quite rare after rain delay that everything just proceeds exactly as it was Mm. doing before usually some something is altered usually the course of the match if not the result but the course or the dynamic is is altered a little bit uh but <laughs> that match that demolition proceeded as planned the, the new york times led off with steffi graf won her french open so quickly and easily that afterwards she apologized to the crowd oh, oh. i mean i w- <laughs> if i was in the crowd though i would want that apology i would be annoyed so so the two speeches one was an apology and one didn't even happen <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> oh. What I want to know is how, how have we got a worse one than that? That well, was number two. <laughs> What's number well, one? Well, at least that one finished. Yeah. Number one, folks, was Amelie Moresmo's great moment of finally winning a Grand Slam title against Justine Ennan in the 2006 Australian Open final. And it was 6-1, 2-love, retired. And... Justine Annan, only the second woman to retire from an Australian Open final. The previous one to that was 1965, Maria Bueno, who retired at 2-5 in the third. 
I don't know from what, but imagine, imagine being a game away. That's arguably worse if you're a game away from defeat and you, and you retire. Um, but I think we all remember this 06 final. I'll just run you through it briefly. Moresmo had reached her first Grand Slam final seven years earlier in 1999. She'd played Martina Hingis. That was a real bolt from the blue. She was only a teenager, Moresmo. But for years, she'd been at the, the upper end of the game she'd been a world number one she'd won the tour finals we know she'd always struggled at the french open never gone beyond the quarterfinals there but she was knocking on the door consistently and then managed to get through to the final of the the australian open played beautifully and you have to say that again you have to just remind people how good she was i watched this match over the weekend and she was playing lovely tennis but then in an who plays a 33-stroke rally at 6-1-2-love uh, at or 6-love-1-love or, or love to get to Deuce. And she wins this 33-stroke rally, asks for the trainer at the end of it, and she'd clearly got a stomach problem. She'd got gastroenteritis. And I, I do sympathize. Anybody who's had that, it's horrible. But within a few points, she just walked to the next net and shook hands. The... The crowd were in virtual silence, as though they didn't quite understand what was going on. Moresmo suddenly realises, oh, I'm a Grand Slam champion, and puts her arms in the air, but it's just all awkward, it's all muted. I, I was commentating on it at the time, and again, you know, you don't get that moment, that crowd reaction, you don't get that ovation, that release of emotion from a player who's just finally won a Grand Slam title. It was just disappointing quite honestly um and on espn tv which i was watching on it we, we, we had at the time we had Murray carillo commentating alongside dick enberg and uh chris fowler with with brad gilbert and mary joe fernandez in in the presenting studio and afterwards brad gilbert said i'd like to have seen a finish mary joe fernandez said if it's just an upset stomach you tough it out they were pretty. They they weren't pulling any punches at all. Um, and Brad Gilbert said, "Look, I'm going to have. A, I'm going to walk out of here today struggling with what we've just seen." Um, and I think that that was the the feeling of quite a lot of people. Now I, I feel for Enan if she's got a stomach upset on a day like that. It's a horrible thing to have happen when you're trying to win another Grand Slam title. But should she have found a way to finish that match and just let Moresmo win it? the way she would have envisaged winning her first Grand Slam title. Yes. I mean, she was able to stay on the court for for the speeches and trophy presentation and everything. I think if you're able to be physically out there, you should finish that match. I mean, it's different if, you know, she had to be stretched off or something. Um, That's a different situation. But um, it's... It's the still the it, it was made worse by the fact that that was Moresmo's first slam, and I'm just so desperately pleased and and relieved that she went on to win another after that at Wimbledon. Um, but it it's still the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Amelie Moresmo, and that is of absolutely no fault of her own, and that's I'm I, I feel like apologising to her that those are my brain pathways because um, it's not fair um, but it but it is that that match that moment sticks in my mind and it it leaves such a sour taste and 
I'm not sure we'll ever hear hear the 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 raw truth from Enan, but I I hope she has regret about it. I do. I hope it leaves a sour taste for her as well. Do we know how Moresmo feels about it, about that moment? Because I was looking at their at the immediate aftermath, the press conference after the final, and she's at pains to say that she feels sorry for Justine Enan. But there is one quote in there which perhaps gets to how she really felt, which was, well, I was prepared to die out there today, which, you know, perhaps implying that she wasn't and she she denied me that, that moment of victory, that sweet sort of exaltation that comes with winning a, with winning a slam, especially, as you said, her first. Um, I don't know how she yeah, would feel I, about I, it now. She was so at pains to be a good sport mm. and, and not and, and look, you know, you don't want to look at somebody who's retired ill and has got a stomach problem and say and be unkind about them. And yet you've you, I felt as a as a commentator and as a spectator, I felt short change that, that Enon should have just got through it somehow. A lot of the other commentators you heard there felt that. I, I, I would imagine that, that Moresmo felt that as well as you said she ended up winning the Wimbledon title beating the same player Enan from a set down but there was there was also a lovely moment quite a memorable moment from that Australian Open where once they'd called game set and match and they're waiting for the presentation to be set up Maresmo went over to Enan and just sat next to her um, and kind of almost consoled her which which was an incredibly generous thing to do I think um, but yeah, it does stand out. You're right, Catherine, and that, that puts it quite well. That when your first thought of somebody is is that that moment, it's it's not what you want, is it? In a Grand Slam final, a very very weird thing I came across when I was briefly researching this match. I don't know whether you came across this as well, David. So you have to win seven matches to win a Grand Slam. How many of Moresmo's opponents retired during that Australian Open? Oh, no. Because obviously in the final, but also two more. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, Michaela Krychek retired down 6-2 in round three. And then Kim Kleisters retired down 3-2 in the final set in the semifinals. So, so, so the quarterfinals was the last match where she won the last point? Correct. Oof. Just to add another layer of oh, misery on this podcast. <laughs> That's really... Sorry about this, folks. <laughs> really bad. And she was playing well enough to win it fair and square. She was she was a multiple Grand Slam champion tennis player. That You know, it's... Oh, oh it makes me feel really sick. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God she won that Wimbledon. Yeah. That is... That's the universe writing a wrong... We're having a heck of a couple of weeks here, aren't we? We're going through our absolute worst Someone send ever puppies. predictions. And uh, we've got one more of these as well for you, folks. We haven't <laughs> uh, even, next... we're not even quite done with the worst no. slam finals. Matt's got some honourable stinkers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, crikey. Yeah, we've got some honourable mentions. Matt, what yeah, have we got? Perhaps they're a list of dishonourable mentions. Well, we've kind of categorised them. We've come up with poor contributions to Grand Slam finals in general. <laughs> <laughs> People we so, don't ever want to see compete in a Grand Slam final again. Yeah, sorry. And they and that award, unless they buck their ideas. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> that award goes to Vera Zvonareva and Kevin Anderson. 
uh, where w- w- neither neither of their respective two Grand Slam finals made the list because we couldn't decide which was worse <laughs> between uh, between the two that they or four that they each played. I, I think I think the other thing just to say about them and players there are a number of players in that category who I mean look those two have done incredibly well to reach Grand Slam finals but I think that that kind of sums it up they've they've in many ways it feels like overachieved yeah. to get to Grand they've Slam finals out. that's and their limit when mm. you then meet one of the the greats of the game like Anderson ended up meeting Djokovic and obviously he'd also had that epic against Isner a couple of rounds uh, around earlier and he and he played Nadal in his other one when you then meet the all-time greats who are peaking for a grand slam final he's just not at that level um and you kind of went into that all of those matches involving those two, just expecting that to be the case. Yeah, and so should say that Zvonareva played Serena and Kleisters, so that absolutely backs up what what you were saying. Um, then we've kind of we've made that distinction between going into a Grand Slam final with expectation and it falling flat, and going into a with a Grand Slam final expecting it to be bad and it being bad. We sort of undenied what was what was worse. I think we all slightly thought that um, at least you get the hype when you're expecting something to be good. So we would always probably favour those. But there's a lot of those um, which were sublime performances from one of them, but disappointing matches overall. We've got Federer and Nadal, Roland Garros 2008, where Federer only won four games. We've got Djokovic and Nadal which Pat Cash, I know, says is Djokovic's, well, he thinks one of the best performances he's ever seen in tennis when Djokovic beat Nadal in the 2019 Australian Open final. We've got that McEnroe-Connors Wimbledon 84 final, which you mentioned, David. We've got Halep Serena from last year, which was just a perfect tennis from Halep, but a, but a no contest. And we've also got another Sampras against Pialine Wimbledon 97 on that list in terms of yeah, sublime performances, so we couldn't put them in the worst of all time because that would have felt really unfair on those who played so well. But almost those ones leave you more disappointed in a way because you've built them up so much. Um, then we've got some that are just on the list for just just being dull, to be honest. Um, Ferrero over Kirk, Roland Garros 2003, Agassi Schuttler, Australian Open 2003. That was a... That was a bad start to the year. Um, Nadal, Ferrer, Roland Garros 2013, when the final really was the Nadal-Djokovic in the semis and you just knew Ferrer had no chance. Uh, Rios Corda, Australian Open 98. Oh, God, Just a drubbing. And also Chilich Nishikori, US Open 2014, which I remember thinking, okay, this is the non-Big Four match that... Maybe people have been wanting, and then we got that. I don't know. I think it was three, three, and three, and it was like bring back, bring back the big four immediately. <laughs> By the way, do you remember Larry Stefanki saying in our interview with him last August that Rios tanked that Australian yeah. final? <laughs> yeah. What's all this Grand Slam final tanking that's going on? <laughs> um, then we've got two more categories. One is for being the final nobody wanted again. <laughs> Overly harsh, probably, but the standout in that category is Panetta Vinci, US Open 2015, when obviously the whole story was Serena going going for the calendar slam and then... 
and that and, and the, stadium, the, the stadium, the crowd inside the stadium barely concealed that that wasn't what they'd paid for, right? Yeah, because that was it. There was a big hoo ha about the fact that the women's final had sold out before the men's for the first time or something, and it had all sold out way in advance, which is quite unusual for that enormous stadium. And there were there were a lot of disappointed people <laughs> watching Panetta Vinci. <laughs> And then our, our final one, I know David disagrees with me on this, but, you know, as soon as I think of worst Grand Slam finals, one of the first ones that comes to me is Serena Osaka, US Open 2018. I know there was aggro and we like aggro, but for me, it went too far and it turned into a, you know, I like it when tennis crosses over and, and does become more than tennis it becomes kind of political and cultural i do like that but i just think this went too far that way it was too controversial i hate the way patrick moratoglu tries to sort of use that as what he wants tennis to be in terms of because the fact that he was part of the reason it was such a mess i hate the way that naomi osaka in the same way we talk about emily moresmo lost her moment Naomi Osaka was lost you know pictures of her crying lifting that trophy the way the question was is this everything you dreamed it would be just (laughs) the whole thing did that really happen cross the line she was asked is this everything you dreamed it would be and oh oh, I've never watched it I've never watched it again I can't it's too much but I know David you uh you disagree with me on that, but I thought I would put it in if I'm in charge of the honourable mentions. I feel like I've just relived it and I feel ill. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've relived it just looking at the expression on Matt's face. Yeah. Is this everything you dreamed it would be? Mortified. So, that was a jolly way to spend an hour off. <laughs> yeah. Back to <laughs> lockdown. But that is why we do it, is because, A, we're in lockdown, and that feels appropriate. And B, it isn't always roses. That's the beauty of the sports. That's why the special moments are so special, because there's a lot of dross in between. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, we've just covered most of it uh, in the the Grand Slam final scheme of things. We're going to do another one on Thursday, looking back at when the greats weren't so great and by that we mean the big three and uh and trying to look at moments in their career when uh frankly it wasn't all sparklingly brilliant um so we'll we'll bring that to we're gonna first. make some enemies on that yeah. podcast aren't we just the title <laughs> worst of the big three is gonna get people on our backs immediately isn't it we intend to well, treat listen- them evenly uh, yes. though i'm sure they're all rubbish I'm absolutely <laughs> positive from all three corners of fandom we were accused of not treating them equally yeah but you know oh, i kind of feel like we're doing after, wait after 663 episodes of telling everybody how amazing they all are i think we can be afforded one where we point out when they slightly messed up um and that's what we're going to be doing and it makes them Thursday. all the greater right that yeah, they've shown uh, shown us glimpses of their humanity Quite there you right. go, I've covered myself. I don't want any Twitter abuse now. Thanks very much. <laughs> Nobody's got to the end of this podcast, Catherine. Nobody's heard that bit. <laughs> We've just done an yeah, hour and 45 minutes again. of talking about stinkers. <laughs> <laughs> have we got any shout-outs, Matt? <laughs> we do, yes. Um, to William Glover, to Stephen Blythe, and to Chris Tate. 
Thank you all Thank very you much. One and all um, for for your support uh, here on the tennis podcast. We we spent an hour and a half yesterday planning our next couple of months worth of shows. Um, so trust that we are we are deeply intending to to produce as many and as many good podcasts as we possibly can over the next uh, couple of months <laughs> you weren't going to say good though are you uh, i was i was um it's going to be amazing folks and uh, it's going to be jolly after this week but if we're going to wallow in our misery for a few more days yet um leave us an itunes review a very nice one um tell people about the show if you've enjoyed it uh join our reddit community sign up to our newsletter which includes our isolation diaries on a weekly basis Catherine was talking about her mouse issues in uh, the most recent one matt was talking about his birthday happy birthday for the other day matt Thank you very much. Yeah. This is, uh, he's an old boy. Old boy now. Near, I, nearly a quarter of a century. I celebrated my 24th birthday with a 24-hour Springsteen marathon, which suitably both went longer than 24 hours, as all Springsteen shows run over, and left you wanting more. So it mm. was fitting. Yeah. And talking about fitting, we have decided we're going to make an addition to the Tennis Podcast shop. And if you go onto our Instagram page, you'll be able to have a look at it. Uh, because we are producing a t-shirt which says three words. And those three words are, I miss tennis. Do you miss tennis, Catherine? Yep. <laughs> it's good tennis, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, we'll be producing that uh, very Imagine soon. Imagine if I said and- no. <laughs> all the profits how would we carry uh, on that, with the podcast yeah that would be slightly problematic 663 episodes she doesn't oh, like tennis yeah it's been a welcome <laughs> um, break uh, but uh, any profits we make from the sale of our I Miss Tennis t-shirts will be going to the World Health Organization Response Fund um, you know, so much good work being done there and we'll donate any money raised uh, in profits from the sale of those I Miss Tennis t-shirts. Go and have a look. They're really nice and uh, I'm going to get mine on because I miss tennis. Do you miss tennis, Matt? You can't hear me. <laughs> he can't hear you, but I think he probably does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he does. Uh, so, I think it's safe to say <laughs> we all miss tennis a bit. We all miss tennis, folks. I imagine you do too. Uh, it'll be back one day. But in the meantime, we're going to do lots of talking about it. Uh, speak to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.